If you have your Bible or, or your Bible on your device this morning, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. If you're on version, you can kind of follow along with that as well. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, chapter 11, we're continuing with the fuel series, and we're seeing some themes repeat over and over again. I'm going to start tonight kind of with the summary of chapter 10 and the first five verses of chapter 11, and then we'll kind of work it out because And I wanted to kind of start out, I guess, with the conclusion tonight or start out with the summary tonight because we can easily kind of get lost in the details. Chapter 10 is all over the place, and so is chapter 11. So chapter 10, this is what I saw when I was praying through this. Um, I saw that Solomon saying, and this again is nothing new in the book of Ecclesiastes, but he's saying once again in chapter 10, there are absolutely no guarantees in the world under the sun, all right? There is nothing for sure in this life under the sun except death, right? I saw as I looked and prayed through it, I saw while there are no guarantees, there are paths or there are directions in life that tend towards success that tend toward happiness, and there are directions or there are are paths you can choose that tend toward pain and tend toward failure, right? No guarantees, but there are certain directions that lead toward more probable outcomes um, in one direction or another. And then finally, um, there is a call in the Scripture at the very end today. You'll see it in, in the beginning verses of chapter 11. There is a call to trust in God no matter what, and to do the best, even though you don't have guarantees in this world, to do your best with the days God has allotted you. Now, I want you to pay close attention. We're going to have a little video clip. It's very short, about 30 seconds. Pay close attention. I think you will enjoy this clip. Tell me what you just said. I I like you when you give me cookies. You like me when when I give you cookies, but you don't like me all the time? Yeah, no. Why? Because I like you only like you cookies. Oh, so only when I give you cookies do you like me? Yeah. Oh, okay, I love you. I, I love you too, but uh, I don't like you all the time. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> oh. I love you. Not all the time. God has to feel this way about us sometimes, or feel that we are that child, you know? Um, we are full of gratitude and joy and thirsty to express our praise for God when everything is going according to plan, our plan. We love being with the brothers and sisters and we love singing songs and, and uh, being together when He's keeping us comfortable and keeping us happy. But the, the message in Ecclesiastes is knocking down all of these false illusions of 
of a designer faith that I create where God serves all of my needs and is presenting us with the stark reality that God is God, I'm not, He's in control, and He is under no obligation to serve my agenda. He's, under, he's not a cruise director whose responsibility is to kind of keep me ha- happy and make sure that my drink is filled up and my deck chair is there for me. He's God and I'm not, and that's the message of Ecclesiastes. And so a person of faith, a faith response is, God, I choose to praise you no matter what circumstance I'm going through in life. I am going to give my life as an offering of praise to you. And a person of faith has made this choice. When life gets really hard, for some, that choice simply is not made. You know, I, don't, I don't love God when things aren't going well. And I, I think about probably the most powerful, clear example in Scripture is this guy named Job. And you remember the story of Job for sure. Job uh, was a wealthy man, had a great family, a beautiful home, all this kind of stuff. And then Satan begins to attack Job and begins to take these things away, takes his success away, takes his family away. Um, the only thing he leaves intact is his wife, which I don't think is by accident because she's, she's kind of a jerk, honestly. And Job, at, at the end of all of this, when this wife is telling him, hey, husband, why don't you curse God? Why don't you tell God, I don't love you? And Job's response in verses 20 to 21, well, we have this, this rendering in Scripture. It says that this, got, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So, even though God gives and God takes away... Even though there are no guarantees, even for the faithful servant of God, that everything is going to turn out all right, neither Job nor Solomon are fatalistic about this and saying it doesn't matter at all. In the end, even Solomon is going to come around and say, so fear God, keep his commandments, that's your duty. And Job certainly chose to lean on God instead of, of refusing to worship God. So here's the thing. As we go into chapter 10 this morning, today I'm alive, right? I don't know about tomorrow. Certainly don't know about 10 years from now, but I know today I'm alive. Um, So today what choices am I going to make? Uh, Today what decisions will I make? Because there are decisions that that I will make that will affect not only my life, but the well-being of my family, the well-being in my circle of influence, in my workplace. Um, What are those choices I'm going to make? Because I want to make choices that are wise. I want to make choices that lead toward success, that lead toward blessing for me and the people around me, that lead toward happiness for those around me. I'm, I'm alive now. I don't know about tomorrow. don't have a guarantee, but I'm going to make the best with what I've got today. So here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Solomon is going to be talking about kind of how to make the most with what you've got. Here we go. Verse 1. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly 
outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay, you can have a truckload of wisdom and honor and integrity and reputation. A little bit of folly can tip that truckload over, according to Solomon. One lousy choice undoing a thousand good ones. Does that sound fair? It may not sound fair, but you know it's real. I mean, you can, you can pretty much just take any week in the news cycle of our country and you will see this proverb played out, right? The, the ones that came to my mind this, this week were, were the guy that's running for Senate in Missouri, my home state. You guys, if you follow the news at all, you've, you've heard this guy's story. I don't know much about him. It's my home state, so I was kind of interested. Um, he was in the lead. It looked like he was going to win his bid for U.S. Senate. Uh, uh, and then he said two words that pretty much, well, we'll see what happens. But they were pretty stupid. He used the phrase, legitimate rape. And I'm sure he had something in his mind about what that meant, and, and somehow that sounded good up here before it came out of his mouth. But now all of a sudden, the National Party is asking him to withdraw. Um, Ex-senators from Missouri from his own party are asking him to withdraw because of two words, Right? I'm not making a judgment on whether he should win or lose. I'm just saying, there you go. Two words, and then his career is all of a sudden in jeopardy. Or what about yesterday? You know, a lot of us were watching college football, and they had the first Penn State football game after the Joe Paterno era. What about, what about Joe Paterno? I mean, you want to talk about a living example of a few flies and a bunch of perfume. There it is. Joe Paterno. Up until a year ago, um, you ask anybody about Joe Paterno and you would have heard words like legend, integrity, um, longevity. He was the most respected man in football. He built a championship-level program. He did it the right way. He made 99.99% of the right choices, and he was going to finish his career off right in his 80s. Still coaching, he wanted one more year. Library on campus, already named after him. Bronze statue of him, already in front of the football stadium. One more year. Covers up for one of his assistant coaches. You know the story, we all know the story. Jerry Sandusky covers up for him. His assistant coach is a child abuser. Paterno was, to some extent or another, involved in the cover-up. The Board of Regents gets together and fires him right before he coaches the last game of the last one of his 46 seasons. Canned. And then a couple of months later, dies. Hmm. A little folly can outweigh a lot of honor, and a lot of wisdom. Well, verse 2, verse 2, let's, let's move on. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, 
but the heart of the fool to the left. I can't believe this wasn't on a banner behind Mitt Romney, you know, last week, you know. But this isn't really about politics. This is about wisdom and foolishness. It's about the kind of decisions you make. Um, Verse 3, even as he, this this is the fool, even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is, whether he's driving down 635 or walking down the sidewalk, everyone looks at the guy and says, what an idiot. As Forrest Gump said, there's a big difference between crazy and stupid. Don't call me crazy. Don't call me crazy. Solomon is talking about, not about intelligence level, not about how you do an IQ test. The fool can have a PhD in rocket science. And the fool can be a certain kind of crazy. The wise person, whether brilliant or slow, knows their limitations, steers their life in a certain direction consistently. The fool thinks they know everything. They think the world is laughing with them when according to Solomon, no, the world is laughing at you, bro, not laughing with you. They don't stop for directions, and I know that could define some of us, and I'm not really talking about when you're driving in your car. The fool doesn't stop for directions. What I mean by that is their life is falling apart, and there they go. Marriage falling apart, hanging on by a thread. Do they go to marriage counseling? No. Do they call someone who's older and wiser? Do they call some old friends and bring them in to help them out? Nah. Their business may be failing. They may be in piles of debt and the economy is a shambles and they keep right on pouring money into their investment plan, their business plan. They don't change a thing. And so there they go. And they say, you've heard this before, I'm sure the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over and over again and expecting different results. Well, that's a good definition for insanity, for crazy. And this is what the fool does. They keep right on walking. They don't stop for directions. They don't make course corrections. Solomon says in verse 3, the whole world is watching him thinking, man, what a fool. I know it sounds harsh, but... Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is kind of telling it like it is so that it can get our attention. So let's talk about career for a second. He's going to, a few verses here talking about the job, the job situation. Verse 4, this is to the the government employee, okay? Verse 4, if a ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your post. Calmness can lay great errors to rest. Great idea. Anger tends to breed what? Anger, right? Doesn't breed peace. Doesn't breed calmness. Anger breeds anger. When somebody gets loud with you, when somebody gets... um, gets angry with you, when someone uses coarse language with you, when someone treats you roughly, your natural response is to get angry back, is to get rude back, is to get short back. And so we end up, Solomon says, we end up reacting to life. We're a pinball bouncing around instead of responding. 
Solomon's like, so you messed up. So you made a great error. How about you just shut your mouth, go back to your job, continue on calmly? Because generally, Solomon is telling us, you will come out ahead if you do that, rather than making your infamous, I'm quitting speech and slamming the door on your way out. You generally come out ahead when you respond to life calmly. All right. Verse 5. There's an evil I've seen under the sun, something that's not right. The sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback, and I have seen princes go on foot like slaves. Kind of a footnote on verse 4, really. Um, His point is this. The person who is in authority, right, the boss, the leader, they may or may not deserve the position that they have but they still have the position. Kind of like Michael Scott. They may have the mug that says world's best boss, but they may be far from it. After the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we live in a world touched by sin. We live in a world that is not as it was supposed to be. There is now, because of our sinfulness, because of our rebellion, all of us, not just Adam and Eve, because of all of our rebellion to God, there has been a certain randomness that's been placed into the program of this world. There's a certain unpredictability that now infects the world. And what this means, there are no guarantees, what this means is sometimes the wrong woman or the wrong man will get promoted right up to the top. And sometimes the right and the best and the brightest and the fairest will get demoted to the bottom and eventually kicked out, fired. There's this randomness. Sometimes the fool is riding in the bins and the wise person is having to walk to work. All right. Verses 5 to 9. This is kind of, verses 5 to 9 are kind of like the fine print on the bottom of the contract, um, that reminding us that even if you mind your P's and Q's, even if you follow wise advice, even if you are trying to make all the best choices, even if, fine print on the bottom of the contract, bad things can still happen. Accidents still happen. Verse 5, or verse 8, rather. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it, Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. Basically, this is his OSHA warning here. Things happen at work even when you're doing the right things. A few years back, an elder of the church um, back in Oklahoma, a, a friend of mine, he was doing his job, worked for the highway department, doing his job out inspecting some things on I-44, hit by a car, right? He survived, and he's okay, but he spent a month in the hospital, and he was doing his job, right? 
Um, accidents happen. Sometimes um, you're doing the right thing at work, and then pow, something happens. He says, you know, a construction worker is, is demolishing an old wall because we're going to build something new, and out pops a snake. Bam! Bites him. <laughs> he says, you know, you could be swinging your axe or, or, or swinging your hammer, and, and, and all of a sudden you're doing it just like you've always done it and you've been taught to do it, but you miss. And instead of hitting that rock or that wood, it hits soft tissue. I remember when we were in Brazil, there was a, a legendary missionary, uh, a great guy. Um, his family had done great work in Campo Grande, Brazil. Um, they left um, the work there to come back on a short furlough back here in Texas. And he, during this furlough, was riding his bike and got hit by a car and killed. No guarantees. Solomon's saying, hey, no guarantees. Fallen world. And since we're coming across a few Proverbs in the text today, because there's some Proverbs, obviously Solomon loved Proverbs. Solomon wrote thousands of Proverbs. Um, the majority of Proverbs in the Bible came from Solomon. Um, but I want you to know this, as we hit Proverbs, Proverbs are not promises. They're not. Proverbs are not promises. They're certainly not platitudes, kind of empty promises, pats on the head, telling you everything's going to be okay. Proverbs are general principles, okay? And people would memorize these, and the wise person knew the appropriate moment to apply a certain proverb, all right? Let me give you an example. Here's a good proverb, and it sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes 10, verse 4, which we just read, but here's one from Proverbs 12, 16. A fool shows his annoyance at once, right? My boss gets angry, somebody gets loud. Well, I respond at once. A fool does this, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. So the wise person would know when to apply that proverb. And the principle, it's a principle, it would generally produce good results. Not always, though. So Solomon was big on Proverbs, not so big on, on platitudes, on kind of cliches, on empty promises that are full of hope but not really tied so much into, into real life. Now, church people can make this mistake in a big way. Um, we can think that Proverbs and, and platitudes are, are the same. You know, if I follow this recipe here, then my life will work out great then nothing bad will happen to me. But Proverbs don't say that. Proverbs say, hey, here's a general principle. Apply it um, under the sun in this world. Generally, things are going to work out better if you follow and apply this proverb, but not 100% of the time. Right? I mean, one of them I've heard church people abuse is this, um, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, right? So some people have taken that and said, well, if you parent correctly, your child will automatically turn out great, right? And we've all seen examples <laughs> to the contrary of that. I mean, um, if you raise your child correctly, yes, there's a better chance that your child will grow up loving God and being a great dad and a great husband and have a good work ethic. You know, there's a better chance of that, but it's not guaranteed. Okay, and then this one, verse 10, great proverb. Verse 10, love it. Um, if the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed. 
but skill will bring success. And this is a theme I see in the text, this smart living, wise living. This, we would say this today. We would say work smarter, not necessarily harder. That's what that proverb is. Um, maybe you don't need to swing the axe harder. Maybe you need to take a break and sharpen that thing, right? Um, and I see this. This is kind of the stop for directions here. Occasionally, um, pausing, considering, thinking, praying, asking advice, getting counsel, um, making some course corrections. Uh, occasionally, that is needed instead of just swinging harder, right? Um, I get so busy sometimes, uh, and, and I know you do too. You can get so frenetically busy and, and so almost trapped. Um, and I'm especially feeling this now that school has started, and there are these activities before school and after school, and there's homework. And you can get so kind of trapped by your routine, and you're just frenetic, and you're just expending all of this energy that you can find yourself swinging harder and harder and faster and faster and not necessarily keeping the axe sharpened. Well, here's, here's another stop for directions. Well, I think we need to move on. So let, let, let's move on. Um, I just think the point here is that to sharpen the axe, to sharpen the tool, a woodsman has to stop all of their activity, spend some time with a whetstone, and work on getting that edge honed. And Solomon says, whether you are a boss, whether you are a mom, a uh, soccer mom, whether you are a dad, whether you are a church leader or a business executive, um, sometimes it's good to cut back on the activity and sharpen what you're doing. Verse 11, if a snake bites before it's charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. I like that. If a snake bites before it's charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Um, yeah, yeah. If you just launch into a project, if you just start... Um, without planning, without getting trained, then, I mean, things don't work out well. It, it, it's better to have the snake show after the snake has been charmed, right? Um, not before the snake has been charmed. Um, it's better to go, it's better to, to cut someone open and do open heart surgery after you've been through medical school, right? Um, it, 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 that works out better, you know? Um, no guarantees of success with any surgery like that, but certainly the propensity for success is a lot higher when the person's been trained, when they know what they're doing. When the snake has been charmed, the show is going to be more successful than when the snake just starts biting the audience, you know? Fools rush in. That's kind of the point here. One of the liabilities for the fool comes from things they might say. Think legitimate rape, for example. Um, that's one of the liabilities. Ann Landers um, once said this. I love the stuff that she says. She said, the trouble with talking too fast is that you may say something you haven't thought of yet. Right? <laughs> something may just, whoa, oh man. Right? So verse 12. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious 
But a fool is consumed, is destroyed, implodes. A fool is consumed by his own lips. At the beginning, his words are folly. That's his starting point. At the end, they are wicked madness. And the fool multiplies words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell what will happen after him? A fool's work wearies him. He does not even know the way back home. He doesn't know the way to town. So the fool, Solomon says, is a highly efficient word production machine. Never lacking things to say. Churning out sentences. Churning out declarations. A fool multiplies words. A fool doesn't have much of a filter between brain and tongue. Um, It's it's just raw, half-baked thinking that's churning out all of the time. And Solomon says what we already know, that in the end, a fool can end up doing themselves great harm, consuming themselves, ruining themselves because of what they said. So before, and I'm thinking this week, I'm, I'm kind of taking this into my life this week as I'm reading this stuff, I'm thinking, okay, before I hit the send button on that email, and I'm a little angry, and I'm going to let this person know what I think, after I type that email, before I hit that send button, how about I have like a, it should be like handgun purchases. There's like a 10-day waiting period. Like your, your, your email program says, no, you can't send this. For, so you wait for 10 days, you think about it again, and then you hit the delete button. Or worse than the send button is that, is that most evil of all buttons, the reply all button. That one shouldn't really even be there. Continuing to talk about work. How can Solomon talk about work without talking about laziness? Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth, whose princes eat at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. If a man is lazy, his rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes the heart merry, but money is the answer for everything. Oh, there's good stuff here, isn't there? Um, so the writer says, look, if you're in a place where folks in leadership position, in this case it's a nation, where your kings and your princes are, are fools, and they exhibit this through laziness, he says, you're in real trouble. Woe is the land. Woe are the people in that business or that country or that congregation. Woe is the place where the leaders are lazy. And his example is they're so lazy, they get everything out of order. They're, they're so lazy. When they wake up in the morning, instead of going for the morning jog and having a, couple of coffee, a cup of coffee and getting started, they're so lazy that when they get up in the morning, the first thing they do is have a giant feast and get totally plastered. And so all of the people who are depending on them to make wise choices, to govern wisely, they're just going to be let down. Good things aren't going to happen. Right? There's a time to feast. It's, it, it, there's a time to feast. It's when the work is done, he says. Not before. Forget leaders. I like this. He talks about the common man. You know, this is just the Joe the plumber here, who, you know, he's, but he's lazy. 
And he's like, what's the consequence of that? Well, this guy, you're going to see his roof is like caving in. Um, it's not just about leaders, about the wealthy. I mean, even the common person can be lazy and the roof is caving in and it's all leaky. And he says it applies to everybody. And then, you know, verse 19, money, of course, money is the answer for everything. Not going to see that one cross-stitched and put on anybody's wall at their house, I don't think. Money is the answer for everything, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 19. But under the sun, remember, this is the perspective of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, pretty much spot on. Really. I mean, if your tooth is hurting, you can go to the dentist and get that tooth fixed if you got money. If somebody gets underneath your car and steals your catalytic converter, I know several guys who this has happened to recently. Apparently, there's a, a, a wave of this going on these days. Somebody gets under your car and steals your catalytic converter. If you have money, you can go get a new one. You know? If you've got legal problems, you can go hire a great lawyer if you have money. So yeah, under the sun... Money solves most all problems. I mean, it really does. I mean, if you're bored, go to the movies if you have money. So, so Bible, which is it? Which is it here? Is money the answer for everything, or is money the root of all evil? Of course, the Bible never says money is the root of all evil. The, money, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, big difference. Big difference. Money in the hands of a wise and generous person can solve all kinds of problems. Verse 20. Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom, because a bird of the air may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you have or what you say. Again, just filter what you say. Be careful. You never know if what you're saying may come back around to you. You never know if an email you send you think innocuously and securely to a friend if something is going to be, get copied and pasted to somebody else. I've had that happen before, and it's not much fun. He says, be careful about what you say. Verse 11. Generosity here. Cast your bread upon the waters. After many days, you'll find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you don't know what disaster may come upon the land. If the clouds... All right, and this, we're getting back to some of the randomness, the unpredictability. If the clouds are full of water, they pour rain down on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. reap. As you know, the path of the wind... I'm sorry, you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. You cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Solomon ends up today's text by essentially saying, you don't know squat. You 
God knows everything and you don't know anything. You can make the best choices. You can invest in the future. You can watch your words. Those things will help you succeed, but you can't know for sure that they will. And in a sense, Solomon ends up by saying we're all fools, in a sense. We're all fools. In a sense, we all woefully lack knowledge. Um, We don't know what's going on today, and we certainly don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Under the sun, there are no guarantees. But the story that Solomon raises under the sun, the New Testament addresses from above the sun. And in the person of Jesus, God, this unknowable, this mysterious, this mysterious deity, he becomes one of us in the New Testament. Jesus Christ comes from above the sun and is born into the world that he created under the sun for the purpose of saving us. For the purpose of showing us that the meaninglessness, the frustration, and the pain that we encounter under the sun is so temporary, and that there is an eternal world that is far more real and more lasting than the one that we see under the sun. And and, and Jesus tells us not only how to get to heaven, Jesus tells us how to be a people who work in kingdom concerns, reversing the curse from Genesis chapter 3 by joining with God in His redemptive mission. I'm not going to tell you today that we can understand God's love because Jesus is the incarnation of God's love. He shows us how much. And I'm not going to tell you you can understand God's love because because really um, all of the chaos and the unpredictability in the world is not the only thing we can't understand. The Bible is also very clear. We can't understand the love of God. It is too great for us. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says, the love of God surpasses knowledge all right so it is something beyond intellect it can't be grasped with knowledge and with facts it is a relationship there is a passion and even then it surpasses us it goes beyond us but what we can do is is we can respond to god by saying i'm going to walk in faith I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not really sure why what's happening today is happening. But I'm going to walk in faith. I'm going to trust in you. And I can make the choice. I will trust in God no matter what. I'm going to try to act wisely. I'm going to try to speak wisely. I'm going to do what I know I need to do. The outcomes, the consequences... I'm going to leave that up to God. And you can make that choice.